Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. All right, first thing I want to mention today is that it is our fundraiser at Antiwar.com, and we have a message from Ron Paul at the top of the page. And he says Antiwar.com is a go-to news source for him. He reads it every day. He makes sure his staff reads it every day. If you ever watch his daily show, The Liberty Report, you see oftentimes him and his co-host Dan McAdams are using articles from Antiwar.com, which is really great. Uh, that's something that I'm really proud of is that we are a resource for prominent people like Ron Paul and others. And he says in this letter that he wrote for us that when he was in Congress, he also made sure his staff read antiwar.com every day. Um, so listen to Ron Paul. Go to antiwar.com slash donate, and you can see the different ways that you can support us. Credit card, PayPal, crypto, anything like that. And please help us get this fundraiser uh, going here so we can wrap it up and focus on our work. So again, that's antiwar.com slash donate. And thanks to Ron Paul for giving us that endorsement. All right, the first story at the top of antiwar.com today, U.S. officials say that Ukraine's troops are too spread out. So U.S. and Western officials speaking to the New York Times blamed Ukraine's struggling counteroffensive on Kiev's tactics, saying Ukrainian troops are too spread out. U.S. officials said that Ukraine's primary goal is to sever Russia's land bridge to Crimea, but that Ukraine has placed its troops and firepower equally along the entire front in the south and the east. So this report, which was published on Tuesday, is the latest example of the West trying to pin the blame for Ukraine's failures solely on Kiev, even though we know that it was clear that the U.S. did not believe Ukraine would have much success but pushed for this counteroffensive anyway. And recently, the Wall Street Journal reported that Western officials did not think Ukraine had enough training or equipment for the assault, but hoped that they would be able to break through anyway. They didn't think they were properly armed, properly trained, but they just hoped that they would find a hole and be able to break through. And we've seen other examples of the U.S. and, you know, officials speaking, you know, to the media, you know, saying Ukraine's not using these combined arms tactics that they learned from NATO, just trying to put all the blame on the Ukrainians. And this report said that as a result of Ukraine's tactics, there are more Ukrainian troops near Bakhmut and other eastern cities than in the south near Melitopol and Zaporozhia. And the report said that the U.S. had advised Ukraine to focus on pushing towards Melitopol, which is a city in the south, and it is um, close to the Sea of Azov, and it's, again, they really want to break through this land bridge that goes from Crimea to the Russian mainland that they have secured there. And that map that I have in there, if you're watching the videos from Southfront, and some news about Southfront, their domain, southfront.org, was has been basically taken from them. Um, they, they've been targeted by the U.S. government a lot. They're under sanctions. The U.S. claims that they're Russian intelligence, uh, which they deny. So if you want to find South Front's maps, now you have to go to southfront.press. And they have all their uh, 
you know, daily coverage there of the war in Ukraine and other wars. They have maps for conflicts around the world. Um, so this New York Times report said that Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, and other NATO top NATO military leaders told Valery Zelushny, the Ukrainian commander-in-chief, in August that at an August 10th meeting, so the meeting was almost two weeks ago, but anyway, they told him that his forces should focus on one area, and two officials said that Zelushny agreed with the Western advice. One U.S. official said that the only chance that Ukraine would have to change the uh, tempo of the counteroffensive would be a change of tactics with a dramatic move. They're saying they really need to make a big change. And if you remember, uh, last week, the Washington Post reported that U.S. intelligence has determined that the counteroffensive will fail to achieve the main objective of severing the land bridge. So the U.S. has also been pushing Ukraine to go harder in its counteroffensive despite Russia's vast minefields and high Ukrainian casualty rate. The Times report, uh, sorry, the New York Times reported this past Friday, as I covered, that U.S. officials fear that Ukraine has become too casualty averse. So Zelushny and other Ukrainian officials have hit back at Western criticism of their counteroffensive, pointing out that NATO would never launch such an assault without air superiority. Kiev insists that is insisting to their Western backers that they need to be more patient. But U.S. officials told the New York Times that Ukraine only has another month to six weeks before rainy conditions will force a pause in the counteroffensive. And I also saw, you know, Ukraine is saying that they're making some gains in the southeast, uh, but everything still seems pretty incremental. Um. So again, I mean, the blame game is really starting now. I mean, it's already started, but I think we're going to see a lot more of this. You know, everybody's going to blame everybody else for uh, the failures here. All right, so the next one here, Ukrainian drones disrupt Moscow airport traffic for the second day. So airports in Moscow temporarily halted service for the second day in a row on Tuesday as Ukrainian drones again targeted the region. This is part of Kiev's strategy to bring the war to Russian civilians. So Andrei Vorobiev, who is the governor of the Moscow Oblast, which surrounds the capital city, he said two drones were intercepted in the region and fell outside of the city of Moscow. He said one fell in the city of Krasnogorsk, and damaged an apartment building and nearby cars, but there is no casualties reported. So Russia's TASS news agency reported that two Moscow airports restricted service temporarily, and this was on Tuesday again, and that nine flights were redirected to alternative airports as a result. And then a day earlier on Monday, there was other Ukrainian drones in the area, and about 50 flights were redirected as a result of that. So you know, these have become very common now, these Ukrainian drone strikes. I'm not drone attacks in the region. You know, none of them have inflicted any serious damage, but it's a reg, you know, seems like an almost daily occurrence now. And I, I don't cover all of these drone attacks now. Before I used to when it was a new thing, but again, it's just become um, normalized now, I guess. And, you know, Ukrainian officials were were saying, you know, when these drone attacks started ramping up, Zelensky said that the war was gradually returning to Russia's territory and its symbolic centers and military bases. And a spokesman for the Ukrainian Air Force said that the purpose of these drone attacks 
is to impact those who feel that the war is distant. So, you know, they're saying that they're purposely uh, targeting civilian areas to, you know, so ordinary Russians who aren't affected by the war um, or don't feel the war uh, start feeling it. Um, And again, this is just a common occurrence now, but still there's always that risk of escalation, especially if Russia thinks that the U.S. or the West might be enabling these attacks. All right, so the next one here, Russia says that it destroyed a Ukrainian assault team in a boat in the Black Sea. So the Russian Defense Ministry said Tuesday that its forces destroyed a U.S.-made military boat carrying a Ukrainian assault team near Snake Island in the northern Black Sea. So the war between Russia and Ukraine has escalated in the Black Sea. And uh, again, this is something I've been covering a lot. So the Russian Defense Ministry said that this boat, they they identified it as a sea force, which is a patrol boat made by Willard Marine, which is a California-based company. I know the U.S. has provided Ukraine with patrol, different types of patrol boats um, for a long time now. There's this Mark VI patrol boat that the U.S. started sending Ukraine a few years before Russia's invasion, and those are armed. They're armed with pretty heavy machine guns. Um, but anyway, this was I don't believe these boats come armed that uh, Ukraine got from this American company. Um, but so before they said they destroyed this boat, Russia said that it destroyed a Ukrainian sea drone that approached Russian gas facilities in the Black Sea. Um, so again, this the war is escalating in the Black Sea, and it has since Russia withdrew from the grain deal that facilitated exports from Ukraine's ports. Moscow chose not to renew the deal because it was unhappy with Western efforts to facilitate the export of Russian agricultural goods. Russia says it will rejoin if its demands are met. And since the grain deal fell apart, Russia has stepped up its bombardment of Ukrainian ports and Ukraine declared war on Russian shipping. Um, So on Monday, a Ukrainian official said that Ukraine might try a new Black Sea corridor because the grain deal established these humanitarian corridors out of Ukraine's ports that Russia you know, took the responsibility of securing. So since they exited the deal, they're not doing that anymore, and they have threatened uh, ships, you know, warning that they'll consider any ship going to Ukraine as something that's carrying military cargo. Um, but anyway, so recently there was a ship that was in Odessa that left Odessa and made it to the Bosphorus Strait, which is the entrance and the exit to the Black Sea that's controlled by Turkey. So that ship made it, and Ukraine is saying that they might try to use that, what they're calling a new humanitarian corridor. And um, that ship stayed close to Romania and Bulgaria on its way to the Bosphorus Strait, which are two NATO countries. So, um, you know, they might try to start really shipping grain using that. And if you remember last week, the Wall Street Journal reported that the U.S. was considering options, including military solutions to protect Ukrainian shipments from the Danube River as an alternative to the grain deal. So hopefully Ukraine figures something else out so we don't see the U.S. or NATO, you know, taking on the security of these ships, because, of course, that would risk a direct conflict with Russia. All right, the next one here, Poland says that Belarus nukes alter security architecture. 
So Polish President Andrzej Duda said Tuesday that Russia has been moving nuclear weapons into Belarus and said the deployment changes the security architecture of the region. So Putin said that the first Russian nuke started arriving in Belarus back in June. So according to Putin and Lukashenko, the Belarusian leader, the nukes have already been there um, and they could still be moving more in. But the deployment has not so far been confirmed by the U.S. or NATO. So this is, I believe, the first time that an official from a NATO country is saying that, yeah, we've seen that there are nukes in Belarus. And so his uh, he made the comments at a joint press conference with Portugal's president and basically just saying that the process of moving the nukes is taking place. He said, quote, it is changing the architecture of security in our immediate neighborhood, but also of the eastern flank of NATO at the same time. So, in fact, it is changing the situation for all of the alliance, end quote. And basically what he's hinting at, what I suspect he's hinting at, is that Poland wants the U.S. to deploy nukes to Poland. That's something that Poland's Prime Minister, Mateusz Morawiecki, he said that that NATO should respond to the Russian deployment in Belarus by putting nukes in Poland. And they want to add Poland to NATO's nuclear sharing program. Duda actually said last year, which was before Putin announced he was putting nukes in Belarus, Duda said that he brought up the idea to the U.S., you know, again, before Russia put the nukes there. This is something Poland has wanted for a while. So under NATO's nuclear sharing programs, U.S. nuclear weapons are deployed in Germany, Belgium, Italy, Turkey, and the Netherlands. There are no American nukes in countries that join NATO after the Cold War, but that could always change, especially now as the U.S. is working to build up the alliance's eastern flank, which is what they call, you know, Poland, Romania, and the Baltic states. Um, And when Putin first announced that he was deploying nukes to Belarus, he compared it to the NATO nuclear sharing program, and he said that he did it in response to the British providing Ukraine with depleted uranium ammunition. So Duda's comments on Tuesday come amid very high, high tensions between Belarus and its NATO neighbors, Poland says it's deploying an additional 10,000 troops to the border with Belarus, and this is a buildup that started when the Wagner fighters arrived in Belarus, and Lukashenko recently said you know, that they'll use nukes if uh, an aggression is launched against Belarus, so it's just turned into a very volatile area, and I know, again, you know, Duda didn't say this on Tuesday, but I know that that's what he's kind of hinting at here. That's what the Polish want, American nukes uh, on their territory the Polish government, at least. Um, All right, the next one here, this is an article from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. Biden administration approves a massive helicopter sale to Poland, so Warsaw plans to buy nearly 100 Apache attack helicopters manufactured by Boeing for $12 billion. Uh, Until Poland receives the helicopters, the U.S. will provide Apaches to its NATO ally. So Poland's been spending a lot lately, and, and U.S. arms makers are, are really benefiting from this. So the Pentagon's Defense Security Cooperation Agency said that the State Department greenlit the massive arms sale on Monday. The deal is for 96 Apache attack helicopters, spare parts, thousands of missiles, other munitions, as well as maintenance and training for the helicopters. So it's a lot of helicopters. It's a big deal. Uh, and lots of money, and Kyle mentions that this comes amid Poland's military buildup uh, near Belarus and all these tensions that are going on. 
All right, I want to take a moment to mention our sponsor for today's show, and that is the Expat Money Summit, hosted by Mikkel Thorup. So this is being held from October 2nd to October 6th, and all you have to do is go to expatmoneysummit.com, and you can put in your email to get a free ticket. It's totally free, and I think this is something worth checking out for people, even if, you know... Um, you haven't thought about, you know, ever moving out of the country or becoming an expat, you know, I think it's a realistic option for a lot more people these days because you have more people working from home, you know, doing the, you could do the digital nomad thing, which I think sounds really appealing. It's something I have thought about doing, working for antiwar.com. Um, and Mikkel, what he focuses on in his work is, you know, helping people who are considering moving out of the country getting a citizenship or, or residency or, or ways to uh, reside in other countries, um, either, you know, as their full-time residence or as a backup plan or as a part-time residence. You know, there's a lot of different options here. So I think it's a really valuable resource and, you know, a unique service that Mikkel provides with expat money. Um and there's lots of speakers there, experts on, you know, a lot of the topics that they cover, which includes, you know, again, the residencies, the tax, uh, you know, uh, wealth protection and things like that. So speakers include Peter Schiff, Mark Faber, Dr. Ron Paul, Doug Casey, Jim Rogers, Tom Woods, and many, many more. So again, go to expatmoneysummit.com. Put your email in. You could go using the link in the YouTube description or the show notes if you're listening to the podcast, expatmoneysummit.com. All right, back to the news here. So this next one is interesting. Algerian report says that France is planning intervention in Niger. So Algeria's national radio reported on Monday that France is planning a military intervention in Niger if Nigerian President Mohamed Bazoum is not reinstated by the junta that ousted him in a July 26th coup. The radio report cited a government source who said Algeria is opposed to any intervention in Niger over fears that it will destabilize the region and lead to a migrant crisis, as the disastrous U.S. and NATO intervention in Libya did. So according to uh, this uh, radio report. Well, I'll just read what the report said. It said, quote, France is preparing to carry out its threats against the National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland in Niger by carrying out a military intervention in the event that President Mohamed Bazoum is not released, end quote. So the Algerian report also said that Algeria denied a request from France to use its airspace as part of a potential Niger intervention. Uh, it said, quote, the military intervention is said to be imminent with all the military apparatus in place. Algeria, which has always re rejected the use of force, has given a negative response to the French request to fly over its national territory to attack Niger. Algiers' response is firm and unequivocal, end quote. And this is something I've seen Algeria has been speaking out against the idea of any kind of intervention in Niger, whether it's France or the ECOWAS countries. And if you're watching here, I just put in a map of Niger. So you could see, you know, Algeria shares a very large border with Niger. Niger and Algeria share a border with Libya. Um, so, you know, a big disastrous war will certainly be felt in Algeria. So that's why they are warning against it. 
So um, a French official speaking to Reuters denied that that France asked Algeria to use its airspace. Uh, the official said, quote, France's joint defense staff denies making a request to fly over Algerian territory, end quote. Um, so France has about 1,500 troops in Niger. It's the former colonial ruler of Algeria and Niger. And, you know, uh, they've backed the ECOWAS threats if Bazoum is not reinstated. And ECOWAS, which is the bloc of West African nations, um, including Nigeria, which is a neighboring country, they say that they're ready to go. They're ready to intervene when given the order. They're also giving room for diplomacy. But the thing is, the junta is not uh, showing any sign that it's going to fulfill what their main demand is, what really their only demand is, and that's releasing and reinstating President Bazoum. They're not going to do that. So, you know, I don't know how this is going to go, you know, if they're, if they're still talking or, or whatnot. So, you know, we really don't know when this could happen, this intervention, but I think, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if we do see it happen, you know, if, you know, we wake up one morning and, you know, Nigeria and ECOWAS invaded Niger. And of course, there's about 1,100 U.S. troops there and a big drone base. All right, the next one here, Pakistan's Imran Khan charged over secret cable. So this is an article from The Intercept. Um, I've just been running their stuff on the Imran Khan situation because they had the story that showed the secret cable known as the cipher that showed, I mean, it's really unbelievable what it said, that last year, the U.S., a U.S. State Department official, told you know pressured Pakistan to hold a no-confidence vote to oust Imran Khan because he went to Russia, because he had what they called an aggressive neutrality policy on the war in Ukraine. Aggressive neutrality. Um, so this article uh, just basically says that last week, Pakistani authorities moved to charge Khan under Pakistan's Official Secrets Act for his alleged mishandling of the classified diplomatic cable. The cipher, the March 7th, 2022 cable, had been at the center of controversy in Pakistan, with Khan and his supporters claiming for a year and a half that it showed U.S. pressure to remove the prime minister. And they've been vindicated by this intercept report. Khan publicly revealed the existence of the document in a late March 2022 rally in April, Khan was removed by a parliamentary vote of no confidence. So he was warning about it before the vote happened. Um, so the allegation is that they were involved in, hand, you know, handling this cipher uh, wrongly. You know, that's what they're charging him with. Um, so it's all about that secret cable. Um, all right. So the next one here. The U.S. slaps sanctions on formerly CIA-backed Syrian rebels. So this article is from Responsible Statecraft by Matthew Petty. And the Biden administration has imposed human rights sanctions on the Hamza Division, a formerly U.S.-backed rebel group in Syria that now fights against Kurds alongside the Turkish army. The sanctions announced last week also applied to the Suleiman Shah Brigade, a Turkish-backed militia whose leader, has ties to CIA-backed rebels. So the two militias are accused of crimes including pillage, rape, kidnapping, and torture in Afrin, a Kurdish-majority district of Syria. So this really uh, goes to show U.S. policy. You know, one minute they're backing this one group, the next minute they're the enemy. 
Um, so in the space of a decade, Washington has gone from training the Hamza division to blacklisting it. And the sanctions are also part of a mixed message to U.S. ally Turkey. Less than a month ago, the U.S. State Department had denied that Turkey was committing ethnic cleansing against Syrian Kurds. But now the Biden administration is targeting the Hamza division and the Soleimani Shah, Soleiman Shah Brigade, both of which have a close relationship to the Turkish intelligence services. Um, so I remember back in 2019 when Trump kind of got out of the way when Turkey uh, invaded northeast Syria. Trump just like moved some U.S. troops and everybody, you know, freaked out about him abandoning the Kurds. He said he was going to withdraw, but he ended up reversing the decision to get out of Syria. And uh, at the time, I think the Gray Zone reported on this, but there was this Turkish think tank had this document about all of these Turkish backed groups that were part of this invasion and against the Kurds. And there's basically just a list of them. And it showed uh, what each this type of support each one got either from the US or Turkey, and many of them, you know, that everybody in Congress is freaking out about got, you know, missiles from the United States and just all sorts of support from the US. So it just goes to show you know, how involved, how many groups the U.S. has, fund, you know, funded in their failed regime change effort against Assad in Syria. Uh, but that is it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have run one from Caitlin Johnstone at her website. Big, brave Western proxy warriors whining that Ukrainian troops are cowards. One from Nick Terse. When is a coup not a coup? When the U.S. says so, that's over at The Intercept about the situation in Niger, about how the U.S. is trying to keep its presence there, so it's not declaring it a coup. One from Matt Taibbi, tracking Orwellian change, the aristocratic uh, takeover of transparency. One from Howard W. French, almost nothing is worth a war between the U.S. and China. That's over at Foreign Policy. I certainly agree with that sentiment. And the spotlight, desperate U.S. hawks face tough choice in Ukraine. That's over at the Libertarian Institute. Um, that's everything for me for today. Again, please help us with our fundraiser, antiwar.com slash donate. If you can't do that, share the show, comment, like, subscribe. All that stuff really helps out. I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening. <laughs>